watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here comes the binge. Hey everybody, welcome to the binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest streaming releases. I'm Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte, and this week we have five movies for you. Happiest Season, Hillbilly Elegy, Uncle Frank, Small Axe, and Super Intelligence. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge It being our highest rating. Consumer moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And Send It Back means... The pandemic is still too short for that mess. Jason, how are you? Well, thank you for asking, Rebecca. I am doing all right. Uh, As we speak, it is the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Uh, So I had a nice little little break from work, a little break to just sort of relax in the new house and, and, you know, figure it out just a little bit more. Uh, Had a nice little little Thanksgiving. Uh, I know it looked different for for many of us uh, this year. Uh, but not for me. I had the whole neighborhood over. It was just open house. <laughs> Caution to the wind. You know what? Uh, because of liberty. Um, <laughs> no, we did not go anywhere. We stayed put. We stayed in our house. It was certainly uh, very different from our Thanksgiving last year, uh, which was spent uh, in Las Vegas at a resort. So that was... Oh, wow. I, I remember at the time thinking... You know, is this going to be depressing? Is it actually going to be depressing to spend Thanksgiving like not in any kind of homey space and actually just like in a casino? <laughs> um, and it was not depressing at all. It was wonderful. And now that it's a year later and no such things are available, I am all the more grateful that that is how I spent Thanksgiving, my last one in the before times. Um, of course, add to that that during that trip, we also saw Mariah Carey's Christmas show in Las Vegas. So. Um, that also made it worth it. This time it was just pretty low key, just us in the house, making use of the new oven. Um, Scott likes to make sushi for Thanksgiving. It's this tradition he's had for many years. So we had turkey and sushi because, you know, Thanksgiving. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanksgiving doesn't have enough carbs. Glad you're able to throw in rice. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I've always said that. Um, you know, it's (laughs) rice is, you know, grains in general are woefully underrepresented in most Thanksgivings. So, um, we like to be grain forward and that's what we did. So, uh, so yeah, just a, just a casual, you know, watch some of the, of the parade such as it was this year. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, then watch happiest season like all gay people did in Thanksgiving, uh, which we will, <laughs> which we will get to shortly. Um, in addition to my all time favorite Thanksgiving movie, possibly one of my favorite movies about any holiday home for the holidays. Mm. Uh, which I think I may also be bringing up a bit later as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, all in all, pretty okay. You know, much to be much to be thankful for this year, in spite of everything. So always good to have a moment to uh, you know to to think on that and to I keep saying some sort of like viral feel good quote making the rounds about how like this year it's not about getting what you want it's about realizing what you already have or something and i'm always like fuck you but sure also <laughs> but also yeah i guess yeah why not you know it's always it's always good to to have a an attitude of gratitude so that is very much the 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 season this year um and then plus you know having all black friday sales online really evens the playing field in a way <laughs> uh, 
it's no longer about what kind of maniacs are willing to trample their fellow human beings uh, at a store at the crack of dawn. It's just about uh, online clobbering. So it's really uh, more civil, I say. <laughs> uh, how about you, Rebecca? How was your holiday? Uh, it was good, of course, uh, very low key. We had ordered uh, kind of like a pre-made spread from uh, a restaurant nearby that was amazing. And I you, you got the Cajun turkey from Kentucky, Kentucky Bell, didn't you? <laughs> I know it's a KFC Cajun turkey gets every year. It's it's always a good thing. <laughs> um, I mean, KFC is a solid choice, but uh, we went with uh, Brenda's in, here in Oakland, oh, and okay. um, I have really. Um, I'm really proud of the leftover sandwiches I've made. Uh, we, we got a brioche and I, I think I really elevated, um, my leftover sandwich making to just, just new levels. And I'm very mm-hmm. proud of that. Um, and Sol and I spent Thanksgiving, um, also watching Happiest Season, I think also, uh, Hillbilly Elegy, or it was, happiest season and super intelligence which (laughs) not to get too far ahead of ourselves but Uh you know thanksgiving is also known as knives out day um and uh, (laughs) which made our choices this year all the more uh hurtful i think (laughs) well i can i can actually tell you with a certainty that you did not watch hillbilly elegy on thanksgiving because that's not the day that you (laughs) and your partner were rage texting me side by side about it so (laughs) so it was indeed uh super intelligence and happiest season that you watched on turkey day (laughs) thank you but you know it's a cumulative effect at that point because i had seen i think hillbilly elegy then the day before probably ah yes Mm-hmm. <laughs> just mm-hmm. just a cumulative rage toward me. I get it. It was. And, you know, Thanksgiving. So <laughs> that's how I spent the day. And you're, and you're thankful for a scapegoat. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Should, so should we get right into uh, one of the sources of <sighs> this uh, mediocre holiday happiest season? Let's do it. All right. Happiest season is the first movie we're going to look at this week. A young woman with the plan to propose to her girlfriend while at her family's annual holiday party discovers her partner hasn't yet come out to her conservative parents. A lot has been said about this movie already online. Um, you know, hard to hard to uh, ignore the very um, opinionated uh, gay Twitter perspectives on this one. I'm assuming you're referring to the wild backlash about Mary Steenburgen's iPad. <laughs> so many just really polarizing very polarizing some people are like oh such a good detail others are like boo and you know you can't please everyone so <laughs> i for one am in favor of her with the ipad i thought that was one of the best parts of the movie <laughs> Which alone, seen, yeah <laughs> says a lot about the movie it does. It does. And you know what? I once had my mom over in San Francisco for a visit. And what did she do? Took pictures with an iPad everywhere we went. So Speaking of your mom, um, I think the highlight of this movie for me was, uh, I think, like in the first five minutes when I said, I bet that's Pittsburgh. <laughs> and I was right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I was I was aware going into it that it was filmed in oh. Pittsburgh, because when you're from the Pittsburgh area, 
you are just it's like you didn't sign up for a google alert about such things but you just know like in your it's like the information is downloaded into your cerebral cortex whenever anything is filmed in pittsburgh mm. um because we don't get a lot um and the things we do get filmed there frequently don't turn out to be great but we'll take it unless mm. it's sienna miller and she talks shit about us to rolling stone in which case oh. we will not take it <laughs> But, I looked uh, at it and but, said, that looks like Cleveland, but more hilly. Hey, I bet that's Pittsburgh. <laughs> it's like Cleveland on a slant. Exactly. That's exactly it. And Clea Duvall has, uh, writer-director Clea Duvall has gone out of her way to praise Pittsburgh on social media extensively. Um, and so she does not stand any potential Santa Miller-style backlash from the people of Pittsburgh. Um, I, can, I can say that whenever I informed my high school friend group, the LVs, about this movie the celebration was extensive um, and uh, although followed by immediate depression that we won't be able to watch it all in person. Mm. Um, but, uh, but here we are. So yes, this is a Pittsburgh movie. Um, it is, or at least, you know, parts of it are uh, once, once they get into the uh, family visit part of the movie, they are no longer there. That's um, the question. Actually, can I, can I stop you for a moment? Um, mm-hmm. I, I was very puzzled by this, part of the movie um because you know there's this uh you're led to believe that that they drive away to go to her parents house and uh and then there's this whole there's like a expensive uber ride back to pittsburgh but then at the beginning of the movie you see the um you see the main characters shopping in like a like the downtown not like the commercial downtown but like you know it looks like i think like the, the south side i think okay and and then when then when they're supposedly at the parents' house, they're shopping in that same small town. So did they go back to Pittsburgh? Have, were they in Pittsburgh the whole time? I didn't understand that. Um, I uh, whenever they show them in that small town, I don't think that was the same area. I don't think that was. I think that whenever you see Kristen Stewart and Dan Levy uh, hanging out in the beginning of the movie, that looked to me like the South Side. Uh, of Pittsburgh, uh, which is like um, Carson Avenue. And uh, the small town that they show them in when they're visiting the parents, that to me looked very much not like Pittsburgh. It looked sort of more like a, you know, maybe like a, a smaller, a smaller main street of a, of a smaller town. Scott looked up the theater when they, when they, they show. Um, that was the other thing. Like, they show that theater in both c- scenarios, don't they? They also show them looking at that theater when they, when you first get introduced to uh, Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis. See, now I did not notice that. Um, Scott looked up that theater, and it appeared to be um, not in Pittsburgh. It appeared to be um, in a in a in a smaller town, sort of northeast of Pittsburgh, uh, closer to McKeesport. So uh, I'm not I'm not sure. I didn't remember it from the beginning. Scott of the movie, is a so. maniac. Why did he look that up? <laughs> Yes, Scott watches literally every single thing as a dual screen experience. Um, like there is not a single thing that we watch that he is not like Googling and like cross checking. Um, so it's just it's just how he works. Um, so and that's how he had that information ready to go. So, um, yeah, so I'm not sure how much it was filmed in like Pittsburgh proper and how much was filmed in sort of smaller towns outside of Pittsburgh. But uh, point being, just- it's a Western it's a Western PA movie. <laughs> it just it just seemed, there seemed to be an inconsistency there for me as a viewer, not as a, you know, Pittsburgh um, expert. But I was very confused that it seemed like they were back in the same town that they had gone on a road trip away yeah. from. And I was very I think, confused. I think the only thing that, the thing that threw me was I think they said something about like 
they said something about like, oh, you're up there in Pittsburgh or something. Um, and they were actually filming it north of Pittsburgh. But anyway, all this aside, this is, this is not the Pittsburgh I have been trying podcast. to find a fresh angle on this on this movie because you're like i feel like my mind need to channel my outrage into something that's not repetitive so i'm gonna go real hard on the lack of geographical accuracy um no uh, i mean the worst since woody allen did blue jasmine uh (laughs) blue jasmine's understanding of san francisco in which kate blanchett's character famously managed to walk from san francisco to oakland um (laughs) which uh is not possible so uh any hoozy. So yeah, so there's there's the geography factor, those opening shots uh, of um, the sort of like small residential areas outside of just unmistakably Pittsburgh. Uh, whenever we first see Mackenzie uh, Aston, no, Davis. Uh, when we first see Mackenzie Davis and Kristen Stewart, uh, uh, you know, having their, their wintry stroll together. Um, very, very nice shots of Pittsburgh there. Um, and then, yeah, the shots of like, again, what I think was at the south side of the strip. Very nice. So the, the, the cinematographer had a great eye for how to shoot Pittsburgh beautifully. So I will say that nice thing about the movie. <laughs> um, but, you know, we should also acknowledge, you know, before, especially if we're going to like tear it apart. This movie suffers the burden of being the first to do something. Um, it is the first major LGBTQ plus holiday romance. Um, This has not been done before. Um, And as with many other firsts, that frequently leads to it kind of coming out in a very diluted, uh, very palatable, very middle of the road kind of way, similar to Love, Simon. Um, You know, Love, Simon was the first ever LGBTQ plus uh, you know, teen romance. And I fucking hated that movie. Um, I was so angry at it for, um, just being so bland and white and inoffensive and having nothing to say. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, you know, it's just like, who is this for exactly? Cause it's, it doesn't seem like it's for gay people. Um, and, uh, you know, so happy a season similarly has to shoulder an enormous burden uh, of trying to, you know, represent an entire population of people that are not a monolith. Um, and so, it, you know, kind of has the cards stacked against it from the get-go. And as so many of these firsts are, it is much more assimilationist than it is sort of um, itself. So, you know, we have still what feels like a pretty straightforward uh, holiday romantic comedy um, that just happens to be about uh, a lesbian relationship. So, you know, which which some might say is the point, and then others, you know, might say, well, that's bullshit. Like, where's where's the actual queerness here? So, but uh, with that said, go ahead and jump in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think that I'm trying to think of other holiday movies, um, you know, straight ones that and and kind of what the the central conflict in those movies can you know generally is. And I think that it's not that this is uh, so much as it's a, an assimilation, but that the core conflict is about this level of disrespect and and anti-queerness um, that is upsetting and feels for the the time we are in now, the fact that it's 
uh, a streaming movie, that it's written and directed by Cleo Duvall. Uh, I think just the huge disappointment that it it didn't try for a, a more feel-good movie for the queer community. Because mm. like, who you're making it for is, um, I would think, at this point, queer people. And it doesn't feel that great. You're leave, you're, you leave the movie thinking that, you know, the protagonist is making the wrong decision because they're with someone who doesn't respect themselves and uh, their partner. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that is, <clears throat> that's the one kind of surprise element of this movie, uh, which has to do with the ending, um, you know, but without getting too specific in case the listener has not seen it, you know, there is, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I just kind of have to talk about it a little bit, but you know, there's the opera, I think the opera I... of it all. Yeah. I right. Mean, I right. Like our, our, our queer listeners surely have, have watched this. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, so we have this, this toxic relationship between Mackenzie and Kristen's characters. Um, and, uh, and the problem is Mackenzie, um, you know, and not just, not specifically just that she is closeted, um, but that she undertakes this m- intensely, insanely selfish act of, uh, you know, of talking her girlfriend into going home with her for the holidays and then springing on her while they're en route um, that she is not out. They don't know who she is and she has to go back into the closet with her for the purposes of this holiday trip. So, I mean, at that point I was like, this is a lesbian get out already. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) uh, This is, (laughs) this is a problem. Um, and, uh, and then as the trip continues, um, you know, Kristen Stewart, you know, goes along with it. And as the trip continues, it just gets worse and worse and worse every day. And Mackenzie becomes more and more disrespectful and less and less communicative and, um, you know, leaving Kristen in the sunken place. And, um, and in the sunken place, she meets Mackenzie's ex-girlfriend played by Arby Plaza. And it's at that point that you get that kind of tingle as a viewer where you're like, oh, Oh, these two are going to end up together, and you're like, oh, that's that's good. That's that is that is that is like your classic rom com holiday twist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that it's going to be that Kristen Stewart went home with her toxic, shitty girlfriend, and then found the actual love of her life um, in a surprise meet cute. And that, to be clear, is how it should have ended, but it's not. Instead, the movie seems to think that we, the viewer are rooting for Kristen McKenzie to work it out and for McKenzie to like come out to her family and to finally like get the cards on the table so that she can be out and proud and profess her love to Kristen and the two of them can be happy ever after. But I have not spoken to a single person who has actually shared that, that thought or that expectation or that wish. The, the, it is deafening the amount of Arby Plaza enthusiasm that I have received personally and seen online. Um, are you are you uh, <laughs> feeling similarly about this? Yes, I'm feeling very similarly about this. Okay, so you know it's it, you know and and it's it tries to dress up. It does almost do a disservice. You know, I know you you said anti queerness. It does almost do a disservice. Um, in in the sense, I think I think I read something else about it that called said it was like almost vaguely gaslighting. But the fact that the movie never actually truly calls out Mackenzie's actions for how toxic they are, mm-hmm. um, it does feel like a form of gaslighting, you know, that we're expected to kind of go along like Kristen is like our audience surrogate 
and we're going in through her and we're kind of like looking around like oh boy like this is pretty crazy and um you know but we're supposed to think like okay well yeah i mean her girlfriend's doing her best she's closeted trying to understand that um but you know like there's never really a point where she really gets called to the carpet to to kind of fully own how abominably she is treating her her significant other so that that feels weird and wrong um that that's not addressed and i know many have also pointed out that they feel like the movie takes place in a much earlier time than 2020 um oh, that definitely. It does, does not feel 2020 it feels i've seen people say like it's stuck in 2007 um you know like it would definitely feels like something from at the very least the last decade not not the teens but the aughts um would you would you you concur 100 percent agree yeah <clears throat> um I, they they go through much to explain like why it's so important um, that or or why uh, Kristen Stewart's character um, is so against Christmas to begin with, right? They set up this like first conflict of like um, you know she doesn't like Christmas because as they say a thousand times in the movie she is an orphan, which is mm-hmm. also a weird thing to say in about an adult person. Um, who she later says in the movie she lost her parents when she was 19. But um, she clearly is has a trauma around the holidays and is then brought into this lie, is also living with someone who, who we, we you know definitely spent the, the next morning breaking down all of the ways it could have been not as terrible, which mm. is, you know, if, if it had been a misunderstanding where she, you know, said she told her parents something and then she didn't understand that, she, but she never told her parents anything at all. Um, but then lied to Kristen Stewart, said that she told her parents, invites her up for this very traumatic time and then puts her through these series of embarrassing and uh, cruel moments, hanging out with her ex-boyfriend till two o'clock in the morning. It is, the, I feel like the level of believability, first of all, is 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 very low. To imagine all of that would, would change in their relationship over the course of a few days, that that someone would be so uh, cruel and uncaring is just, like, unfathomable. Yeah. And there's even this, like, pretty nice speech by Kristen Stewart's best friend. Uh, Dan Levy's character gives a speech about how there's all different types of family coming out experiences and some are accepting and some are not, which would have been a good way to even address what happened with Mackenzie Davis and her parents without necessarily even saying that she had to go back to be with her. Um, it could have put in, that could have been a nice bow to close out what she's going through. Um, but then still, I think even, I feel like the cast in the room was like disappointed with the way the, the end of the movie went. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really just strains believability. And, you know, and I think that, you know, Clea Duvall, I think, is a very compassionate artist. And so I think that she is is extending that compassion to Mackenzie's character and trying to understand her plight and where she's coming from and why she's closeted and why she's reluctant to come out to her family. And then, of course, you know, once we meet the family, we have a more contextualized in terms of the father having political ambition, the mother supporting those ambitions. The sister played by Alison Brie being, you know, this this uh, alpha perfectionist to please her parents. Um, the outcast sister, <laughs> who's played by Mary Holland, who is uh, probably mm-hmm. the, the funniest part of the movie. Definitely. Uh, she also co-wrote the script with Clea Duvall. 
Uh, so she's not she, so she's not off the hook because she's partially responsible for the script. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, so I, I feel like Lee Duvall is coming from you know a good place with this, and you know, and just trying to you know sort of come up with this kind of queer update on a comedy of manners, um, you know, and I, I'm sure she knows, you know, that, you know, she knew this movie was going to be endlessly dissected by, you know, queer viewers online and, you know, probably found lacking, but, you know, it, but still, it just, it just, it's so, it's so hard to believe that they didn't see how wrong it was going to feel for that to be the end of the movie. It's so hard to imagine that they were like, yes, this is what everyone's going to want. Like, I think the, the better ending would have been, you know, kind of in everyone, you know, gets, everyone has, gets to have their cake and eat it too. Uh, wherein, you know, Mackenzie comes out to her family, but Kristen still ends up running off with Aubrey. And, you know, and Mackenzie and Kristen come to the realization that they shouldn't be together, um, wish each other well. Kristen goes off to be with a well-adjusted lesbian. Um, and Mackenzie goes back to, you know, starts the very, long journey out of finally coming out to her family um, and, you know, being her authentic self in all avenues of her life. That would have been the right ending. Um, but the one that we have is just a wish fulfillment for a wish that no one's asked for. It's, the, the, the lack of self-respect for Kristen Stewart's character at this point. I mean, is this a story you go back and, 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 and tell people? I, it's embarrassing and terrible. This is not a feel-good holiday movie. No, no. So, uh, yeah, it's tough. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of, of, you know, nice things to say about it again. Love that iPad. Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, there, there's, there's some, there's some, you know, clever dialogue and insights and references here and there. Um, you know, the performances are fine. Although, you know, as everyone knows, Kristen Stewart is not at her best in a comedy, um, mm-hmm. but you know, but of course, like if you're making this movie, Kristen Stewart is like, yeah, I'll play that role. Then you, you let her play that role. <laughs> um, but, uh, I've seen some, some, uh, queer criticism that takes umbrage with the very existence of Dan Levy's character, that there has to be like a wise gay male friend there to like sure. tell them about themselves. Um, although he does. And I, I had also seen a great tweet that was just the amount of, of lifting he does to make this movie watchable. Um, yeah. His, you know, his humor is uh, really the highlight of the movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, his, I think that's why he and Aubrey Plaza are the fan favorites because they provide some much needed like bite and groundedness in what's otherwise a very silly, frilly affair. Mm-hmm. Um, because the family is so insufferable. Uh, Mackenzie is so insufferable. Um, you know, Kristen is, you know, just kind of this, she's just like this ragdoll being tossed around in all of this um, toxicity and dysfunction. So, and then Aubrey Plaza and Dan Levy are both, they're just like the voices of reason. And I think that's part of why they both come across so attractively in this movie. The acting was was very meh, given the cast. I felt like the writing and directing was off. And I, I felt this in a couple of movies this week where I don't know if I've just been, you know, in quarantine too long. But I feel like I don't remember people moving that way around each other or saying <laughs> things like that to each other. 
Um, so <laughs> maybe it's me, but this one, it felt stilted and weird. There were a lot of moments where I felt like the actors, I could feel the energy of like, they don't know what to stand, where to stand. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would probably chalk that up to, I mean, Clea Duval. I mean, to be clear, I adore her. She's wonderful. She is an icon. She is a gift. Um, you know, but in terms of directing, she has not done a ton. Um, this is her second time out as a director. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that she's still maybe a little figuring things out. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, there's a certain amateurishness to just kind of, there's a certain stiltedness and, and just lack of naturalism and flow to, to, yeah, the performances and the whole vibe. It's like the actors weren't exactly sure what tone she was going for. Um, and so some of them go like very arch, some of them go more naturalistic. Um, and as a result, it kind of feels like maybe these actors are all in different movies. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's a tough one. Um, and I mean, if this movie gives anyone, you know, anyone hope with any like closeted kids able to watch this with their family or whatever, then, then that's fantastic. Um, you know, I think for more kind of jaded queer viewers who, who have seen more, this is not a pleaser. Um, so, you know, it's, it seems like, um, regressive in, in several ways. That's a, that's a lot of words to say this movie sucks. I'm giving it a send it back. What about you, Jason? <laughs> oh God. Um, well, before I get to my rating, um, you know, going back, I mentioned home for the holidays, um, in my little preamble, um, and, and this, this, this applies to both this movie and Uncle Frank, which we'll get to later, but we've been another, another little movie between this and that one. Um, and Uncle Frank, I mean, we're not talking about yet, but I, I did like uh, more than I didn't. Um, but ultimately, it has a sort of very bogus conclusion um, that is just more of this kind of queer wish fulfillment, but very inauthentically that I don't feel like people are actually really wishing that things would go that way. Or certainly not that movies would depict them that way because it's just so far from reality. Home for the Holidays, a movie I will always, always, always stand, has, I think, the most realistic and nuanced depiction of what life actually is for a queer person going back to be with their family the holidays uh, of any movie I've seen. And have you have you seen this, Rebecca? Uh, I don't think so. So... Uh, so the character, the queer character in this movie is played by Robert Downey Jr. And, uh, you know, this is a comedy. Uh, Holly Hunter is the protagonist um, as a sort of a floundering single mother who has to fly home to see her family um, at Thanksgiving. And then her brother, who is an uh, who's, you know, who's who's gay and who's recently gotten married, um, lives in Boston, comes home, too. And then they have a sister who has never left the town who is not accepting of uh, of the brother and his sexuality. And the parents don't acknowledge it. And so and then over the course of this film, um, there's sort of a giant family conflict over Thanksgiving dinner um, that leads to the hometown sister outing uh, her brother to the family um, while screaming gay epithets at him. 
And, uh, you know, and it's, and it's, it's a very, it's all done very, very authentically. This movie is directed by Jodie Foster, who knows about the closet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it is, and so we see this family and their kind of journey with, um, with their, their gay son, their gay brother. And we see that they're all in different places with it. They're in different places of acceptance. They're in different places of denial. Um, and we see just like incremental human growth. Uh, and evolution in their attitudes toward him and their acceptance of him. And, uh, and and more importantly, we see in him, Robert Downey Jr. plays the character with a very, very believable kind of gay uh, resignation, I guess I'll call it. Mm. And this might just be, this might just be like my slash our age. Um, and maybe like young baby gays, you know, wouldn't relate to that because they, you know, are growing up in a different world. But he does not expect anything from his family in terms of in terms of acceptance or affirmation um he because he knows better he grew up in a different time so that does not matter to him he has his own chosen family and there's one beautiful scene where he gets a phone call from his husband after this whole altercation and we just had like a glimpse of his husband and with all of their friends having a friendsgiving in boston and i remember just as a kid that meant so much to me seeing that glimpse of what life could be like um, and so it's, it's just, it's truthful. It's a truthful depiction of these kinds of conflicts about, um, you know, gay family members going back, uh, to see their families and dealing with these issues of, of being closeted or being outed. And there is not a single honest thing about happiest season. There's not a single one, nothing honest, no honest moment in this entire movie. Um, so uncle Frank does a little better, but not in the ending. So if you're so, gonna say that, there's no way you can give this movie anything but a send it back. <laughs> you're, you know, I was gonna go consume, um, just 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 as a gesture uh, that you know this movie was made and exists. Um, mm, uh, I mean, I still I can't. Uh, it's tough, man. It's tough. All right. Well, in a in a show of holiday goodwill, I will join you and I will say send it back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Streaming on Hulu, rated PG-13 for some language. Movie number two. Hillbilly Elegy. A Yale <laughs> Law student. Hmm? Sorry, I was going to say, it's a, it's a good thing we're starting with two movies we have nothing to say about. <laughs> Four hours later. <laughs> a Yale Law student drawn back to his Appalachian hometown reflects on his family's history and his own future. This is written uh, based on a, a book written by your favorite author, right? <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. Um, you know, J.D. Vance is the reason why I now go by J.C. Leroy. <laughs> in the hopes that somebody will confuse us and they won't just be J.T. Leroy. I'm always getting confused with. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's, this is another movie that has quite a bit of internet chatter around it. Uh, many, many opinions. I feel like we've now entered the backlash to the backlash period. I'm now seeing, uh, a oh, number really? of posts. I'm seeing a number of posts that are furiously defending Glenn Close's performance. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. so, uh, but, uh, yeah, but, but not, not necessarily so much defending the movie itself. Um, Rebecca, as I alluded to earlier, uh, while you uh, and Sol were watching this film, 
uh, you were both angrily messaging me. Uh, you were looking for an excuse uh, or my, my permission really to stop watching it. And then when I would not give it, that's when Saul began to uh, menace, <laughs> menace me. That's when she began to menace me over WhatsApp. Did you ever have um, that feeling or maybe when you were younger and there was like something you really didn't want to do at school the next day or for some reason you don't want to go to work the next day? Like there's a you have to speak in public or there's a test you're not prepared for or everyone's making fun of you and you like seriously consider like so if I close the window on my hand then I have to go to the hospital and I don't have to go to school tomorrow or you know but if I something like that um I started to have that kind of anxious feeling during this movie and and it's because of the yelling that Mm -hmm. was like what what do I need to do to make it stop, um, how can I stop watching? It was it was like a an in like a panic kind of. Um, and luckily, I'm I'm overall in a good place right now. Otherwise, I probably would have shut it off and not finished it. Um, but this movie made me uh, very um, <laughs> unhappy, <laughs> to say the least. Yes, if you were pointing to the mood chart, you would point to the big frowny face uh, <laughs> for, for how this one made you feel. Yeah, no, I was curious. I was like, walk me through exactly, you know, what your experience was watching this movie and why it was so, so very much you wanting to pull the the emergency pack and just like jump out of the plane. Uh, because you know, another... I, oh, sorry. No, no, no. I mean, I, I remember I, I do recall that you don't enjoy yelling, um, which, of course, I don't relate to as a Housewives viewer. Um, I, I am, my body and spirit are never more relaxed than when hearing the sounds of women screaming at the top of their lungs, uh, in complete agony and terror. So I was like, fantastic. Um, you know, had some eggnog dozed off, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I was, I was truly curious, uh, what it was about this movie that started that that was so, uh, uh, toxic for you. The, the abuse the physical and verbal abuse in this movie paired with um the really hard to digest call moments uh so the, the kind of I, I believe the 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 timeline is that you see um JD in college first kind of present day and he's really nervous about having to go to talk to these uh hiring uh, law um uh agencies so he can get a summer internship while he's at Yale and that that part is very obnoxious in in terms of how it it's trying to uh, get the sympathy for this character in a kind of a um, made up situation where he he thinks he's being judged for where he's from and then it then it starts to to intersperse with these flashbacks um to his childhood and these scenes with his again uh physically and abusive uh, and and verbally abusive mother so it had already been like wow i i really don't like the point of view that this movie is coming from and i don't have a lot of sympathy and then to and then to just to see the the violence and the yelling it felt gratuitous because it, I, the story is such shit. You know, it wasn't like yelling, but in in service to a story worth telling. It was, it all just felt very pointless, and it felt as though I wasn't doing myself any favors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I do think that it's 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 so unclear um, what it actually is about um, when you're watching it because you know it's telling these 
it's telling, you know, what seem like two different stories. Or really, I think the, the element that throws the whole movie out of whack in a way is this weird focus on whether JD is going to make it to his appointment for this internship. Yeah. Um, because com- comparatively compared to the gravity of the horror show that's on display for the rest of the movie in terms of the physical mental abuse, in terms of the extreme drug addiction uh, you know, in terms of, you know, this sort of like, you know, socioeconomic crisis, like in terms of all that, the question of whether or not this like this kid's going to make it to his his fucking, you know, uh, a bit internship interview. It feels like you're you're combining some like Deborah Granick Winter's Bone movie with like a Ferris Bueller movie. Like who gives a shit about <laughs> this like yuppie kid making it to his internship? His mother is about to die. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think that part of the disconnect with this movie, from what I've gathered, is how how greatly they have, um, they being, you know, sort of, I guess, the combination of the screenwriter, Vanessa Taylor, and director Ron Howard, um, have just gone in and surgically removed any and all political context from J.D. Vance's book. Um, so apparently this book was never actually even fully marketed as a memoir. It was marketed as, uh, it was meant to be sociological because it came out in early 2017, um, back when there was still this enormous emphasis on like, oh, working class whites, rural mm. whites who voted for Trump. Who are they? Why are they? What makes them tick? And this book was meant to, um, elucidate on that. However, it was, it was being elucidated upon by J.D. Vance, who himself is very, very conservative, uh, who has been a commentator uh, for Tucker, Car- Tucker Carlson, uh, who uh, you know keeps very uh, dubious company, and who, uh, in the book, rather than just sort of relate the humanity of his experiences growing up, um, goes out of his way to essentially equate poverty with moral failing, to say that it's a learned, he, he calls it learned helplessness, um, so if we, if there's a lack of compassion and empathy in this movie, it's because there's none in the book because, <laughs> yeah. because he is very much a, you know, a believer in bootstrap salvation. Mm-hmm. And I think that ultimately is how, why the movie actually is true to him by making it all about the fact that he refuses to let his family prevent him from making it to, um, his fucking internship interview to prove once and for all that he is superior to everyone who's still back in his Appalachian hometown, uh, because he got out and he got to Yale and he, you know, got this fucking internship or whatever. And, uh, and they're all back there dealing with their own failings as a result of their own problems. Um, and he doesn't have those because he made it out. So, I mean, it's, like the fact that we left there's, you know, this, this sort of this, this kind of pivotal climactic moment in the scene. Um, you know, we have JD, uh, taking his mother, Amy Adams. Um, you know, he's having to take her to this motel room, um, as like a stop gap. So he can just finally hit the road to drive 14 hours or whatever, uh, and make it back to his internship at first thing in the morning. Um, and you know, and, and there's, you know, he has, there's a whole, you know, she, starts using again, and then there's a handoff with a sister who's played by Haley Bennett from Swallow. Did you recognize her? 
Oh, I thought it was Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> it is not. It is Haley Bennett from Swallow uh, and playing a, a wholly different housewife from wow, that one. Wow, definitely. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll give her a good notice. I think she was she was very good. Agreed. Um, but uh, so and then so so we're at this crossroads in this movie, right? Where on the one hand we have this you know this this drug addicted. Um, mother who is at the, this, one of the most vulnerable points in her life, uh, who is, um, you know, lashing out. We have this long-suffering sister coming in from a long shift to to look after her mom. And we have the, like, dopey Yale Law student who's going to go to his fucking internship interview. And this is a movie that thinks we want to follow him. <laughs> that his is the story that's the most interesting. Um, that that's where we should be focusing on this person who's out there achieving. Um, you know, not on these people that are just wallowing in their own poverty, which is their own fault for not getting out of it. Um, the lack of empathy and emotional curiosity about Amy Adams' character in this movie is repellent. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I feel like that movie or that scene where he's, uh, before he's about to go in the interview when he's having this dinner and he's like, he's just so angry and upset that he doesn't understand how to navigate like which fork to use as though this is like, um, you know, a moment of injustice, like a royal injustice on par with like, I don't know, all of racism that he just like mm-hmm. has to have dinner and can't figure out what fork it is and, and how terrible it is. And then he, and he goes back to the table and he says this thing about how smart his mother is. And it's the way he says it is very obnoxious and not very believable and arrogant. And then it starts that I think maybe maybe the first flashback about her being abusive. And I think that mm-hmm. in another person's hands, that actually would have been a really great story where you have this guy who has this memory of his mother as one thing. And then, you know, she's something else. And it, it could have been super interesting. But he, positioning him as like the only moral authority from a from a kid to an adult Mm -hmm. in this in in the in all of these very complicated lives is is the the point of view that is that makes everything so problematic yeah right no exactly exactly centering jd um is it is basically it's 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 the seeds of its own destruction um because there's no there there like there's no character in jd right um, at least not as an adult. As an adult, there's truly no character whatsoever. You know, we see these flares of, of, of you know, sort of class envy and resentment. Um, you know, when he's at this, yeah, this this posh Yale dinner and, you know, and doesn't know yeah, which fork to use, da 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 um, You know, keeps having to call his, you know, girlfriend, played by Frida Pinto, in one of the most egregious thankless girlfriend roles truly <laughs> that I've ever seen. I didn't know that we were still making movies with roles this thankless where truly the role of the girlfriend is nothing more than to be on the other end of the phone, calming down her boyfriend and being a listening ear for whatever dumb bullshit he wants to talk about. Um, major disservice <laughs> to Frida Pinto who Hollywood has not known what to do with since we were first gifted with her in Slumdog. Um, but, uh, so, you know, so we see that, but, you know, once, aside from that, we just, there's no, there's no character. The, 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 the young actor who plays him, I guess there's two different young actors that play him, right? Um, I can't remember if they, if they, there's, there's like one that's like a little boy and then one is a teenager maybe. I thought it was Um, the same dopey 
they had the same like toe-headed boy yeah um <sighs> the you know the you know that that kid you know ha- i you know i think he i feel sympathetic toward that actor just because of what we have to see him go through um you know similarly the way you feel toward the actresses who play christina crawford and mommy dearest <laughs> um, you know, when you watch a, a, a you know, a, a juvenile actor uh, on the receiving end of horrific, horrific abuse, um, you know, then you can't help but be like, oh, that poor kid, like, hope they are, you know, had their fucking you know, therapist nearby so they don't internalize this and carry it the rest of their lives. Um, but, you know, they, yeah, there, there's just there's nothing to JD. It's a nothing character. It's not it should not be his story. And the fact that his position adds his story is just heinous and bogus and conceited beyond all belief that he thinks he is the story here that he is the focus he is the one we should be looking at for lessons on how to beat this epidemic of uh poverty um you know poverty and opioid addiction and all that like what you need is just to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and and get out there and change your life look i did um it's 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 just the presumptuousness is galling uh it is yeah it is it is oh and even even his arc as a kid um is is so uh, uh frustrating because you know this this whole uh you know movie we're watching him kind of he wants to avoid falling into any of the pitfalls that his mother has fallen into um and then literally just like that like from one scene to the next, he is suddenly falling in with a bad crowd. <laughs> um, and it's like Jerry Blank, you know, it's like when Jerry <laughs> Blank starts smoking pot, um, suddenly he's got a whole different wig on. Um, <laughs> and I hope he's ready to spend a lot of time laughing with his friends. Um, <laughs> he stole the TV. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. JD stole the TV. And so who comes to the rescue? Mama. And, uh, and Meals on Wheels. <laughs> And Meals on Wheels, yes. So we, this is the first of two movies in a row that we're going to be talking about that have a character named Mama. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to be confused with our own dear Mima, uh, right. friend of the show, Jen Chachnoff. Uh, but uh, but no, Mama, um, who certainly looks like Mima, um, but uh, with one <laughs> with, with, with with one vowel uh, of distinction. So okay, so Glenn Close in this movie. I will say that I feel like she was vindicated by the actual footage of Mama they show yes. in credits. Yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, holy shit, that's exactly what she looked like. Yeah. Also, also, that was the high point of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> they were, they yeah. were really good. Yeah, that was A+. plus. Like, every single detail. I was, like, reading, um, you know, a critique of movie today, and they were really just, like, going in on all the character choices for Mama. And I was like, did you watch through the credits, though? Because that was her. <laughs> that was exactly what she looked like. Um, you know, it's certainly unflattering is, is a gentle word. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but it is it is exactly uh, uh, what Mama looked like. I think that Glenn Close does everything she can with this uh with this role um i i don't know that i'm quite on board with uh like i mentioned this backlash the backlash of people arguing that she's actually great in this movie um i i think that she is perhaps arguably still miscast and you know this is the kind of role that should have been played like by Margot martindale who's in the next movie playing mama <laughs> Margot martindale is more of a natural mama um, you know, with Glenn Close, when you look at all the things that had to be done to make her look right for this part, 
it begs the question of was she right for the part in the first place if you had to change her that much? <laughs> Um, but, uh, but she certainly gives it the old college try and, you know, within the first minute of the movie, she has flipped off Amy Adams while saying perch and swivel. So uh, oh, I, I, I certainly felt like, I felt like I was in for a good ride at that point, but I was wrong. Um, this but, reminds know, me of all the, all the, I, well, I thought, I thought I wasn't sure what you, how you were going to feel about this movie until, until we got a little bit more into it. But off the bat, I was like, oh my God, he's making me watch Roseanne. And I think he loves that show, and he knows I don't. He I, he knows I don't love it. Uh, and then I was like, oh no, he's not gonna like this. Once like once I got more into it, but I was like, oh shit, the two hour long episode of Roseanne. Oh god, yeah. Well, yeah, no, I mean, it's just this movie, despite the fact that they have stripped away all the political context and hence the actual alleged relevance of the entire fucking story. Um, it is just not a compassionate film. You know, this is a film about human struggle that that portrays it so bluntly and so ferociously, but without an ounce of human compassion and nothing but scorn and judgment. And that's like, which, why the, all of the violence hits so hard. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, people say that, you know, the point of art is to teach compassion, that through art, we experience life through the shoes of others. And through that, we expand our compassion and our understanding of the many different forms of the human experience. In that sense, this movie is actually anti-art. <laughs> uh, uh, because it is actually against all those things. Um, it is not showing us this walk of life so that we can have compassion. It is showing us this walk of life uh, to shame it. Um, while also, at the same time, strangely puffing up its chest about it. Um, you know, this whole thing of like, uh, you know, Glenn Close being like, oh, well, that's because, you know, there were, oh, why are all those people saluting our funeral procession? Because we're hill people, My you know, God. so it, it wants to remind us that, you know, that we don't know better than these people and that we are not better than them just because they're from the hills, the hill people. However, JD wants us to know he is better than them, though. So <laughs> we, the viewer, are not meant to feel superior to these characters, but JD just wants to make sure that we are aware that he is superior to them, which is Ugh. just garbage, just absolute garbage. This is a send it back in the most send it backiest form. <laughs> this is like a maybe que question your Netflix subscription. Yeah, I mean, it feels I, I think that they are it feels like everyone involved is getting the sense that like this is a disaster. Um, because I feel like they're pulling back on marketing for it, or maybe they're just really um, focusing their marketing efforts in more red states. Um, but certainly awards-wise, I think they're starting to pull back. I don't um, even know how someone and, in a red state, like, I don't know how a conservative would enjoy this movie. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's tough. I mean, I, I feel like I've definitely seen, you know, movies where a conservative audience, conservative audiences love screaming at shitty mothers. Mm. So... So don't forget that if there's one, if there's one thing that conservative audiences seem to love, it's vilifying uh, a woman, uh, especially a mother, and blaming her for everything. So uh, I feel like there is that, uh, there's that you know sort of conservative Schadenfreude uh, to be had watching this movie, where they all just get to you know scream at this junky mother and blame her for everything and then cheer on her son for, you know, um, succeeding uh, in spite of his terrible mother. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's the white conservative precious. Mm -hmm. 
it is it is just bad news. Um, it's a consume plus for me. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, send it back. All right. Uh, streaming on Netflix, rated R for language throughout drug content and some violence. Movie number three is Uncle Frank. Accompanied by his teenage niece, a closeted gay literature professor reluctantly returns home to attend his father's funeral. Well, you have a lot to say about this one. Why don't you go ahead and get started? Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, this is a film that, as I previously mentioned, um, has uh, a conclusion that I actually am angrier about the more I think about it. Um, But the journey to that conclusion is generally a positive one for me. This movie is basically, it is now... I, I guess it's now the definitive Gunkle movie, uh, the definitive gay uncle movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, we we are the story is told from the point of view of a of a teen girl from a from a southern family in the early seventies. Uh, this girl is played by Sophia Lillis, uh, who is a wonderful young actress uh, who played young Beverly in the It movies. She plays young Jessica Chastain, who played young Amy Adams in Sharp Objects. And she looks like both of them, but although much more <laughs> freakishly exactly like Amy Adams. Um, and, uh, you know, so we have this this conservative Southern family, another one. And <laughs> uh, and then, you know, we have this kind of this kind of prologue uh, where we see the family gathered for the uh, for for Papa's birthday. Papa played in a curious bit of casting by Stephen Root. Um <laughs> Uh, where we see the whole family coming together to fawn over this toxic, uh, abusive nightmare man um, and to offer him gifts for his birthday. And uh, we see that he singles out uh, his son, Frank, for extreme unnecessary cruelty uh, in front of the entire family. Uh, and, uh, And we see that, you know, we see some sort of caring glances in Frank's direction from the women in the family, um, from, um, from young Sophia, from Mama, this time, as mentioned, played by Margaret Martindale, um, from, uh, from sister-in-law Kitty, played by Judy Greer, expert in playing people named Kitty. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then we see uh, Frank flee back to New York um, and, uh, and, and Sophia Lewis is sad because she feels like, well, now he's never going to come back because he doesn't come back very often. And the family doesn't really fully know why he's living this kind of this kind of far away life and doesn't like to spend time with the family. And uh, so then whenever uh, she goes to New York and uh, to go to school and drops in on Uncle Frank, uh, she discovers to her great surprise that Uncle Frank is actually gay and has been living um, with a partner named Walid for uh, something like 10 years. Uh, so and we have these very sort of cute uh, scenes of her kind of getting into the groove of their queer 70s Manhattan existence um, and sort of finding a little place for herself there. Um, this is all very precious. Uh, but then, uh, not precious like white precious, like Hilda Elegy, mm-hmm. precious in the traditional sense of the word. Um, but then we find out that the evil, toxic father has passed away and uh and now they uh will have to head back to the family's home for the funeral uh so you know it's 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 interesting um that that's the conflict uh or you know the instigating incident because the father was really the problem (laughs) 
Um, you know, so in a way, killing off the father kills off the conflict because the rest of the family, as far as we know, has no real issue with Frank. Um, but all the same, as we learn as the film progresses, Frank has a lot of um, bottled up trauma related to sort of an undisclosed incident from his youth uh, involving uh, a relationship that he was in when he was a teenager and, uh, and the way that that ended. And he has been running from that uh, his whole life and, uh, and now feels like he's going to have to confront it. So, uh, you know, this film is uh, written and directed by Alan Ball, uh, who famously wrote American Beauty, uh, the creator of True Blood. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's, 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 you know, had a hit and miss record. And this movie was uh, loosely inspired by uh, an incident. He's also comes from a Southern family. And, uh, and he mentioned in, in, a, in an interview that when his father died and he came out to his mother afterward, his mother said that she blamed his father, who again at that point was deceased, because she suspected that he was, quote, like that too. Um, and, uh, you know, which understandably sent Alan Ball into a bit of a tailspin since his father was now dead and he had no way of ever being able to confirm any of that. Um, and then mentioned, she also, uh, mentioned, uh, that, uh, her, uh, his father had had a very, 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 very close friend when he was younger named Sam, uh, hmm. wh- who had, uh, who had died. And uh, so, so there's sort of very little, you know, personal uh, influences on some of the details of this story. Um, but uh, but yeah, in general, I would say that this movie is it won me over uh, until things go off the rails uh, in the final reel. Um, just because I think it had the performances first of all are terrific across the board. Uh, Paul Bettany plays perhaps the best role of his career as uncle frank Mm -hmm. this is Mm -hmm. he is so incredible in this in this role um i think you know i feel like paul bettany is an actor who doesn't i just feel like i never really get to connect with him in these kinds of more actual just like three-dimensional humane roles and he does a lot of genre work maybe because he's kind of weird looking um (laughs) but uh but uh but in this uh yeah, he's a little he's a little odd, but in this one they really that they seize on the weirdness of his physicality for some just perfect seventies costume design uh and uh mustache styling. <laughs> so those things are really well done. Uh so great performances. Uh you know, it felt it felt much more sort of uh genuine um up until the ending, uh than something like a happiest season. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this, this ending I keep hinting about, you know, it's, you know, it's a, it's a happy ending. So if you're worried about that, then don't, but if you're looking for a truthful ending <laughs> or an ending that feels even remotely rooted in the reality, uh, then look elsewhere because like, I don't, I truly don't understand why this movie ends the way it does. It just ruins like the, the, this is a movie that really did feel like it was rooted in a lot of just naturalism and honesty. And that's when you when you're doing a character study like this, honesty and naturalism are kind of all you have. Like if you're not telling a truthful story, then what are you doing with a character study? And this movie does feel truthful until it doesn't. And unfortunately, that's the note that it ends on. Hmm. I didn't find the ending as upsetting as you did. Okay. I think I, I do want to say uh, quickly that the casting of Stephen Root and his as his father 
works beautifully in that Steve Zahn, who plays his other son, looks just like a young, young version of him. <laughs> or has done a really good job to sort of embody his energy in this movie. And That's I feel hilarious. like that was so believable. <laughs> yeah, I could I could see that. I could see that. Although Steve Zahn has always been attractive and Stephen Root never. But yes, go on. <laughs> well, just wait a couple of years. Um <laughs> Is it a big leap to see the level of acceptance change just with the removal of the father? It's it's a lot, but I don't think, I don't know. I didn't think it was that crazy. I feel like the father was, you know, a really big imposing figure on the family that dictated a lot of the energy and abusiveness. And with his passing, I, I think there was space for this kind of acceptance I think mm-hmm. the the part that that did push it a little bit, the character of Wally, his his partner, mm-hmm. even though I find him, uh, I find him very entertaining. I I, w- I wondered if if you had any thoughts about his dynamic in their relationship. It felt like a dated, stereotypically feminine role, and I wondered if that felt sincere or if mm-hmm. that felt like it was you know like unnecessarily um, stereotypical. Mm. Um, I didn't have any issues with, uh, Wally. Um, I, I, you know, I did not take issue with his, you know, femininity. I think it, you know, to me, it kind of balanced out. I could see that the, the relationship dynamic between he and Frank, Frank being this serious, you know, uh, sort of recovering alcoholic Southern literature professor, and Wally being this much more ebullient, effervescent, celebratory person, I can see how they balance each other out. Um, I think they had good chemistry as a couple. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, so I, I do, you know, see their you know, potentially problematic nature of casting kind of the only person of color in the movie to be this kind of um, sideshow, uh, this kind of um, uh, comic relief. Um, you know, this person who is there to just sort of like help the white people feel better about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, but I, but I think that, you know, I, I did buy the relationship. I, I, and I did recognize Wally. Like, I feel like, I feel like I have met him many times. I feel like, <laughs> oh, uh, I, I also have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I mean, so I feel like it was, a, it was a truthful, it was a truthful character. Um, although there is a moment, uh, later on in the movie um, during a particularly dark moment for Frank, where he uh, does something to Wally that I did not think would be as easily forgiven as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, who went, who went really, really makes Mackenzie Davis look like a caring partner in comparison. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so I, I, I did think that there was. You know, we and, and they, you know, so there there was a bit too much of of Wally as like this endlessly um, patient fount of love and goodwill and affirmation. Um, you know, right down to being able to being happy to take abuse um, and just be like, hey, that's okay. Right. Um, you know, um, even though he's also you know being very very aggressive in his efforts to keep his his partner. Um, on the on the sober path, 
Um, we do see, you know, they try to give Wally a, a, a bit of his own uh, background. Like there's a really beautiful scene where we see him on his own, calls his mother back in Saudi Arabia, and we get to watch this sort of very beautiful phone call play out between the two of them. And and uh, and it really, uh, for me, it worked for me in terms mm-hmm. of the emotional impact yeah. of that scene and, uh, and pull in the way that it sort of, you know, helps us contextualize these two men together and their respective experiences as gay men. Um, coming up at a time that, you know, the world was much less understanding. Uh, and, and of course, in the case of Wally, a place that is still not understanding. Um, I feel like in, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. In, in this case, learning afterwards that the actor who plays uh, Wally, uh, Peter McDissey, is actually Alan Ball's partner in real life. Uh, um, did, yeah, I did. Did kind of calm some of those concerns that I had I feel like if I had known this was maybe like a a straight director or actor I would have still had some question marks about that portrayal of yeah that sort of endless support and um and just like the dynamic of the relationship again that it had, it had a very like bird cagey type vibe you know um mm-hmm. humor uh queer partner but but knowing that that you know the point of view that the movie is coming from did did help. Yeah, I think one thing that landed with me about his joyfulness is I feel like he really embodied gay life in New York in the seventies pre AIDS. Mm. Like just his absolute, just like devil may care joie de vie was to me, it just fully embodied this, just this dream that was gay life in New York before AIDS. Um, Pope of post Stonewall pre AIDS was like that was the window <laughs> that that was the window for uh, for gay life in New York, and so to me the way that just like that 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 just lust for life that courses through that character, it very much tracked and placed for mm. the place and time that the character existed. I like the way this movie. You know, I kind of you kind of start off thinking that the character of Beth is going to be the protagonist. And that you were going to see Uncle Frank maybe pop in and out of her life and help change and shape her. And, you know, a very different kind of hillbilly elegy where, you know, he comes into her teenage life and tells her she can be anything she wants to be. And, you know, convinces her to get good grades, says he will help her if she has to get birth control. And really comes in as as a force to help change the trajectory of what she can do. And I didn't realize it was going to kind of pivot into... uh, to being about uh, Frank primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt like it was it, it handled smoothly. And I, and I felt like she would then kind of pop into his experience as he's dealing with his father's death and, and going back to his hometown and dealing with his family in a way that was very complimentary. I overall in, enjoyed this movie. Again, I, I didn't find the end to be so mm-hmm. offensive um, or right. unbelievable. The, the Wally, the acceptance of Wally um, was was pushing it. I think, um, but but I don't know. Maybe it was after the string of <laughs> movies that I had seen prior to that. You know, it's impossible to say that you know there isn't context laid by the, by the two movies before, which were very similar, right? We have one about a, a poor Southern family, the other one about a, a queer relationship, and mm. this one really comes out on top <laughs> by far. It does. It really does. And you know, I think it's interesting. You know, that I feel like we're saying similar things about the ending. Where I was like, "To kill the dad is to kill the conflict," and you're saying like, 
is it so hard to believe that if you remove the father from the equation that the women in the family would have a problem with Frank? So I feel like we're saying similar things about that. Um, and I guess, I, you know, I was I would be looking for just a, a bit more nuance there or for them to just actually just come out and and say what it seems like they're saying, which is that the only problem um is uh dads <laughs> uh, the problem is dads <laughs> get rid of the dads and uh and uh, and everyone's happy and everyone's accepting um although of course you know it could be argued that the movie um especially in light of what we keep have seen in the last two elections is perhaps a bit too complimentary of uh white women uh mm. from rural communities being progressive <laughs> let's say that fair enough jason what are you giving this one? I'm giving it a binge it. Oh, wonderful. I'm also giving it a binge it. Oh, uh, Uncle Frank is uh, streaming on Prime Video and it's rated R for language, some sexual references, and drug use. Next, we have Small Axe, Mangrove, and Lover's Rock. So the Small Axe series is um, being produced by the BBC. It's based on uh, a novel. And these are, I believe they're going to be five. Is that correct, Jason? Yeah, the uh, there are five five films here uh, that are all uh, telling stories about the West Indian community, West Indian community in London between 1969 and 1982, and all the films are directed by Steve McQueen. So, Small X is a series, and then we're gonna take a look at two the first two episodes, which are Mangrove and Lovers Rock. Mangrove is a true story of the Mangrove Nine who clashed with London police in 1970. And the trial that followed was the first judicial acknowledgement of behavior motivated by racial hatred within the Metropolitan Police. In Lover's Rock, a single evening at a house party in 1980s West London sets the scene, developing intertwined relationships against a background of violence, romance, and music. So, Mangrove. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, this is interesting. Um, you know, Steve McQueen, um, of course, is uh, the filmmaker behind 12 Years a Slave, Behind Shame, uh, most recently Behind Widows, um, mm. which uh, was in, was a movie that I thought was a bit of a misstep. Although I think it was in your year-end list. It was Rebecca. You were a big fan, no? I think so. Yeah, I think it was on my list, right? Yeah, I think so. Huge fan. Um, huge fan. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge fan. I mean, it was Mishi. Gotta love Mishi. Uh, it's our, our long-standing support of all all Mishi projects, <laughs> and uh, Mishi did us proud in, uh, in Widows. Um, but now, after his, by far, um, his most sort of mainstream uh, star-driven effort yet in Widows, um, he has swung way to the other end of the spectrum um, to uh, to make these five movies for BBC and Amazon Prime um, that are uh, telling very specific, uh, nuanced stories of the West Indian community in London um, around which uh, Steve McQueen grew up as a child. And, uh, you know, and right off the bat, I can imagine that this comes as a relief uh, to to some critics who uh, who generally uh, take umbrage whenever uh, a black person from the UK takes it upon themselves to tell stories about American race uh, race uh, matters, such as 12 Years a Slave. Uh, so uh, in this story, uh, Steve McQueen has gone back to uh, to tell stories that he has a, a very strong personal connection to um, and covering a wide gamut of different subjects and different genres. For instance, Mangrove is a legal drama, whereas Lover's Rock is a party movie. So right there, 
very, very different uh, uh, genres, uh, both done in his sort of inimitable style. And I feel like the strengths of both um, are very similar. I think that both Mangrove and Lover's Rock are at their best when um, when it is just Steve McQueen and his and his production crew capturing sort of the natural intimacy and rhythms of of these communities that they're depicting. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why Lover's Rock is superior because that's literally all it is. <laughs> um, it is just, it takes place in the ramp up to the party and then the entire movie is the party and then it ends pretty quickly in the most perfect possible scene. Um, it's just 70 minutes long and we, mm-hmm. we, know, we know that I take issue with, uh, with movies that <laughs> run shorter than let's say 75 um but uh but this it's it's just too perfect so i I will allow it i will allow it in the case of lover's rock but uh mangrove the first half of it or so um is so incredibly uh well done as we're just sort of getting this very fly on the wall understanding of this community um that are all congregating around this restaurant um this community uh you know of, of immigrants from the west indies gathering together to just be in community with one another and, um, you know, to find that, that respite, um, in this, uh, in this country. And then, um, uh, quite unfortunately also seeing how frequently and aggressively this establishment is targeted by the local police, um, endlessly harassed, um, with no, uh, cause whatsoever, um, leading to a very explosive protest that then in turn leads to a lengthy court trial. Uh, Rebecca, what did you what did you make of uh, of Mangrove? So, Mangrove just need, needed to be two separate episodes in the series. I think. Mm. I think that making it this one was two hours long, and making those making the the basically uh, trial movie uh, its own its own endeavor maybe with like a you know slightly different approach i'm not sure if if all of these are going to be as different as from each other as mangrove and lovers rock are from each other or if that's mm. it's almost as though you would think they were you know made by different directors like you know you picked a set of directors to make a a series based on this book um and they both have the the look and feel of steve mcqueen but the approach to telling a story is different pacing i would have liked to see would be you know mangrove cafe owned operated getting started having the clashes with the police then maybe lovers rock and then following that a whole episode about kind of the follow-up to maybe the 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 protest and the the trial of the mangrove nine i just felt mm-hmm. like it was mm-hmm. it was too long and it it pulled away from two very interesting stories yeah 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 i i, I think that um it's so hard to make a courtroom procedural pop or feel fresh in any meaningful way because we've seen it's done so many times. And I don't think that Mangrove finds a way to do that. Um, I feel like once we get to that point in the film, we do, we have this kind of transition from the kind of wholly unique, very specific vibe that McQueen had created up until that point in the movie with this just enormous specificity of time and place. Mm-hmm. Um, it then it, we transitioned from that, which was new, uh, but thrilling into the much more familiar, um, kind of 
beats of a courtroom procedural. And it just becomes a lesser movie at that point. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the most important thing about Mangrove um, is just, you know, that it might be a, a wake-up call to let American viewers know that, you know, the police harassment of Black people is not just an American problem. Right. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we can see through this story um, how this has played out in the UK as well. And I think in particular, one thing that I think Mangrove did really well is it illustrated how infuriating uh, the sort of um, quintessential stiff upper lip British civility can be. Mm. Uh, we see this, um, you know, this the 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 judge, for lack of a better word, I don't know British law, legal terms, but um, the judge overseeing the trial um, uh, for this this case about whether or not these um, these black protesters had, uh, you know, uh, uh, behaved in criminal ways during the protest, um, you know, he uses. Um, basically sort of like British, you know, social code and etiquette and legal etiquette to just repeatedly chastise the, um, you know, the, the, the protesters uh, in ways that just felt so suffocating, um, you know, so much m- above and beyond your standard American courtroom things of just like order in the court. Um, and, you know, all the stuff we just saw Frank Langella do in the trial of Chicago seven Um I think it just more than I've seen before illustrated um, how British civility can just be a suffocating gag um, on, on justice and on expression. Definitely. And, and this movie also does an excellent job of showing how cruel and relentless and how frustrating um, it can be to be at the mercy of a, you know, police station, police captain, that has it out for you or a community of people and, and how ruinous could be to your, your life and your business. Um, mm. I think, you know, uh, the comparison to the Chicago seven, I think also kind of reinforces the idea that, um, you know, that, that was a whole movie about the, the seven defendants on that trial. And I, I think it takes that like, now you you have you have two more defendants. <laughs> it's it's the Mangrove Nine, and mm-hmm. um, I it's like you can't get into enough of maybe the the details to make it interesting, and it just feels very repetitive um, for the kind of the whole courtroom uh, piece because there aren't enough details to make you um, kind of understand the amount of trial that you're seeing. Right. Because it's yeah. kept very surface. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it definitely loses steam there. Yes. Yes, I would agree. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting history lesson. I was not familiar with the Mangrove Nine. Um, I agree that, you know, it does um, also, yeah, like you're saying, show us, kind of gives you firsthand uh, um, insight into what it is to be in a community that is just relentlessly targeted by police for no reason other than uh, bigotry and prejudice. Um, you know, and this is, you know, I know for Uncle Frank, I alluded to Stonewall. And of course, you know, the reason for the Stonewall riots was the endless police raids of gay bars uh, for years and years and years. 
Um, you know, so those raids are were bullshit, and the raids in this movie are bullshit. And uh, so it is uh, certainly a, an interesting historical lesson, but it doesn't quite work as a film. Again, like we were saying, the first half, wonderful. Second half, mm. Um, lovers rock though lovers rock though (laughs) what a slice of heaven this movie is what a what a what a time to see it as well i think Mm. um anyone who's starved for human interaction or dancing um this is you know augmented reality holograms 4d can all go to hell (laughs) because it's it's some it's a piece like this that really makes you feel like you're in a room, um, you know, feeling the moisture of other people, uh, the moisture in the air of a room of people dancing. There's this like great scene where people um, are singing after the song has ended and you can like Mm -hmm. hear their feet on the floor um, as they're continuing to dance. This movie, Mm -hmm. this was just a complete treat. Yes, uh, that that scene was a centerpiece. The song I had not heard before, it's uh, called Silly Games by Alice Kay. And man, was that, that was transcendent. That was a transcendent sequence. Um, I will say that, you know, going into this movie, I was a little, I wouldn't say skeptical. I was more just like mildly noting on my own that like reggae is one of the only genres of music where I'm just categorically like, nope, not interested. Oh. Um, and I've just never been a fan. I've never gotten into Bob Marley. I don't get into dance hall. I don't get into any of it. Um, but, uh, damn it. If this movie didn't give me an appreciation, it really did. Um, you know, cause we're just, it's, it's a depiction of just such joy, just total joy. And of course, not without conflict. We have some pretty horrifying things happen at a, a few moments over the course of this party. Um, but they somehow work all, they all make sense in the flow of, uh, of all the life because there's just so much life. You feel so much life to your point, you know, in addition to just feeling just like the sweat of the people in the room, you just feel their life forces. Um, and you know, it really is a pretty simple movie in the sense that we just watch things come together for this party. We see, uh, the, the equipment being loaded the, for the DJs into this, into this, into this space, into this flat. Uh, we see our sort of semi-protagonist uh, sort of escape from her home to get out, to go out in secret. Um, you know, we have a few, you know, we really call them characters, just people that we meet along the way that we just pick up little things about in the way that you would at a party. Um, but, you know, it's a mood piece. And it, the, the cinematography is so stunning. The lighting, the costume design, the mm, music. Oh, this- that reminds me, uh, we need to bring up, there is going to be a, there's a new binge award, which is, um, this is the first time we're doing it and the first Jason's hearing of it, uh, a new category, Best Shirts Award. This movie gets <laughs> the Best Shirts Award for all of the amazing shirts in this movie. Congratulations. It's, it's, it's the Schmucky Jones Memorial Best Shirts Award. <laughs> uh, old Schmucky sure loved a good top, but... Uh, <laughs> But no, yes, I'm sure you were like online looking for these shirts as soon as the movie was over, if not during it. Let me tell you a thing. I picked up my <laughs> phone during this movie to look that up. And then I, this was right before the scene we were just talking about, uh, but during the, the dancing of that song, to that song, and I picked it up and I, I like opened the search bar and then I was, then I put my phone down for the 
first time in any of the movies that we've seen so far. And I was just like, no, I can't, I can't look at something else. I need to keep looking at this movie. Hmm. And it's incredible. That's incredible. Cause we, we know uh, how easy it is once you pick up that phone during the movie to just lose all connection with the movie. All of it. Um, but this one actually uh, transcended that cause it's just that kind of movie. Um, you know, and I, I think I agree that also just the specific time and place that we're living in, watching a movie about a bunch of people getting to come together and just groove um, physically in a room is is certainly its own kind of escape. Um, you know, but even without that that context, I think this movie would have been just a ravishing delight. Um, you know, just the way that the camera lingers uh, on the details of these people and their bodies and their smiles and their movement um, and the way that it fuses so perfectly with the song choice and the way that the camera just, you know, maneuvers through the room, you know, going from someone's shoulders, someone's back to someone's hips to the turntable. Uh, it is, you know, it's just stunning. It's just absolutely stunning. One of the uh, costume designers on this film, sorry, film <laughs> won uh, two Oscars, one for Little Women and one for Anna Karenina. What's the name? Uh, Jacqueline Duran and the other oh. is Lisa Duncan. Oh, shit. Well, I mean, you can see that it's not surprising to find out that there's Oscar-winning costume design at work here um, mm-hmm. because every, everyone looks amazing. Um, you know, and just, like, it's just, you know, I go back to sort of like the writing of Angelica J. Bastian that I alluded to in our last episode when we were talking about bad hair. Um, and it was Angelica J. Bastian who... Uh, alerted me via her piece in Vulture to Lover's Rock, which we had not actually originally planned to include in this episode. It just came out two days ago, and we were only going to talk about Mangrove. But based on her piece, I was like, ooh, we should maybe watch that one, because I knew that I had been somewhat underwhelmed by Mangrove. And I was like, well, if there's a good, you know, overall good movie in this small act series, we should talk about that one. And, you know, I know that part of the issue that um, Bastian has taken with movies like Bad Hair and Antebellum and um, is this kind of having to turn um, black life into this horror show over and over and over and over again um, for dubious ends and for an unclear audience. Um, whereas this movie just, it depicts black joy in such a poetic, warm, gorgeous way. Uh, you know, we just see, and, and I think that was kind of the best parts at the beginning of Mangrove as well, when we're able to just sort of watch these characters interact in a space where they feel completely safe, completely belonging, completely surrounded by by people they connect with. Um, it's 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 beautiful to see, and Lovers Rock um, really elevates it. Lover's Rock is uh, getting a binge it, and Mangrove is getting a consume. What about you? Same. Yeah, same. Oh, perfect. Um, and they're both streaming on Prime Video. There's actually a new one coming out tonight, um, and they're rated TV- TVMA for language and violence. Last movie, Jason. We have to make this one quick. <laughs> Running along. Which I think is, is appropriate. The movie is Super Intelligence. When an all-powerful superintelligence chooses to study average Carol Peters, the fate of the world hangs in the balance. As the AI decides to enslave, save, or destroy humanity, it's up to Carol to prove that people are worth saving. Well, if that doesn't say everything it needs to say about this movie. 
Can I just say that I was absolutely floored to discover that this is the first time that Melissa McCarthy has played a character named Carol. If you had told me that every character she's played for the last 10 years was named Carol, I would have believed you. <laughs> but shockingly, against all odds, this is actually her first Carol. I can't believe it. I'm absolutely, wow. I, I really can't believe it. Yeah, that is shocking. Yeah. Um, so now she's got a Carol under her belt. Uh, and she is working, regrettably, once again, with her husband, Ben Falcone, with whom she makes bad movies. Yep. Uh, there was one that I genuinely enjoyed, which was The Boss. Uh, I know that I was not exactly um, surrounded by like-minded thinkers on that subject, <laughs> um, but I personally loved it. However, the other ones that they've made, Tammy and Life of the Party, are horrendous. And now we have this movie which actually was meant to be a theatrical release, uh, but is now just streaming on HBO Max. Can you imagine paying money to go see us in the theater? Mm. Oof. Mm-mm. No, 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 no. Uh, the... This was the one of all of the train wrecks we've seen this week. Uh, this was the one that we had to stop and finish <laughs> later. You see, I I'm, I was really I didn't know which one which way you were going to go on this because I also know that you have really taken a fondness for just brain dead comedies um, during wow. uh, this difficult chapter in all of Wait, our lives. Where was that from? Wait, like what? From from fucking Eurovision? From oh, oh my I don't God. know from the binge? Our podcast? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's a well-documented no, thing. You? You've, it's a well-documented thing you you've talked about on this show that you really enjoyed stupid comedies as a nice just escape valve. Uh, this is not a comedy. Times. This is not a funny movie. <laughs> well, no, I didn't think those were funny either. Well, that's on you. This is um, <laughs> <laughs> the takeaway. I think the takeaway from this movie for me, and again, I want to keep it short because this movie is not worth the time of of this podcast even. Um, which is doesn't have a monetary value <laughs> at all, but this movie to me is and and uh, the the uh, the amount of um, ego you have to have to not understand how much of people's time and money that you're wasting on this piece of shit movie. Everybody that watches this movie, everyone that worked on this movie, this was just completely unnecessary, a total piece of shit. Well, there you go. Uh, I would say there is exactly one funny scene in this movie. Thankfully, it's toward the beginning. So if you do want to watch this movie, you can press play and then watch through the scene where Melissa McCarthy goes for a job interview and has to no. sit on an enormous cushion. <laughs> no, I, w- I, I felt like I was kind of I was kind of glad there wasn't that much physical comedy in this movie from her at the whole like ah, awkward in the body. Um, and, and, I, and then that scene came up and I was like, oh, they're still doing that. Well, that, that to me did not seem like an awkward, anything about her body. That to me was just like making fun of this, like ridiculous tech office interview where she was expected to do this impossible leap onto this enormous cushion, uh, for a job interview, which to me was just a perfect comedy setup. Um, and just uh-huh. classic McCarthy. Um, and plus the interviewers are played by. Uh, Jessica St. Clair and, and uh, Karan Sony, who are both uh, comedy MVPs who are you know brought in for this kind of single scene in and out kind of uh, business. So 
Um, but after that, yeah, the movie, I, I truly, like, while I was watching it, I, I, I zoned out. And then I came to, and suddenly it was all about whether or not she was going to get back together with Bobby Cannavale. And the artificial intelligence was giving her a condo. And I didn't, and I, I was like, how much did I miss? How long was I out? <laughs> um, and then I was like, well, that's okay. If I start paying attention again, I'm sure it'll make sense in a few minutes and they'll explain themselves. They never did. They never did. I was, I, I never had any idea why her relationship with Bobby, Bobby Cannavale had anything to do with whether or not the super intelligence was going to destroy humankind um, and why the super intelligence also gifted her with a new wardrobe and a penthouse suite. The, not, not a bit of it made sense to me. The product placement in this movie is also out of control. Oh, it's hysterical. hysterical. Tesla, Microsoft, it is disgusting. Well, and the Microsoft thing in particular is just hilarious. Um, because this movie exists in an alternate universe where like Microsoft employees are these like uh, much vaunted after tech experts that are brought in to deal with major government matters and not just kind of nerds in Seattle. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, no, and this this was a, a massive a massive letdown. Um, it's just it's just a nothing. And to your point, yeah, like it really is barely a comedy. Um, I don't I, I just I don't know why this movie exists. Um, and it's just an empty fart of a movie. I will say that this movie did make me cry. <laughs> God, God damn it! What? <laughs> so. <laughs> there we were. You, you emotional shambles of a woman. <laughs> there we were. Rage watching the end of this movie. Uh, Soul had already started to, I think, watercolor because she needed to be completely <laughs> distracted from what was going on. And um, they're having this this scene where where uh, Melissa McCarthy and Bobby Cannavale are catching up, and he's like drinking this cup of coffee, sitting on on the like the kitchen island, like looking cute as hell. And uh, he's like trying to move out. And I'm, I was just saying that, like, you know, maybe it's the thing where in a drought, the, you know, a drop of water looks like a like a bucket. But he is just so perfect in this movie. He is so adorable. He is so likable. Um, I was just like so into his character. And then so I was like, oh, he reminds me of you. And then I started crying. It's <laughs> like, the nicest thing anyone could have ever said right now. <laughs> These movies have wrecked me. Oh my god! <laughs> that was that was it. Was was Soul surprised that you had that reaction to yes. being to being told? <laughs> yes, that? and then he, but then he did something that was so me, which was like oh, no. he hugged his like cardboard cutout of a uh, baseball player goodbye, oh. and then I was like, all right, I see it. <laughs> was Soul so concerned and then that she went down? I guess <laughs> like, yes, that would happen to me. Someone would take care of that for me because I can't do oh. it. <laughs> Was Soul so concerned that she put down her watercolors to tend to you, uh, or did she continue to paint while you while you sobbed? I mean, it was just a, it was like a one loose tear, you know. It wasn't <laughs> full on thing. I was very touched. The single tear, the single tear, the most dramatic of all. Uh, well, I'm glad. Well, see, yeah, well, I'm glad the movie gave you both that moment. Uh, that is a that is a tender. That's a tender moment. And and Bobby Cannavale, that's that's just his magic as an actor. So mm. uh, so so big ups to Cannavale. This movie is not his fault. No, it absolutely is not. Um, this movie is terrible. Please send it back. Please don't waste, back. waste your time. No, send it back. Uh, HBO Max, not doing so great so far um, this year. Well, I guess the last two. 
movies we saw from HBO Max were not that great. Uh, it's rated PG for some suggestive material, language, and thematic elements. And that's it. Oh, speaking of HBO Max, I actually just watched another one of their movies last night. I watched that movie Unpregnant. Have you heard of that? I have not. Uh, it has Haley Lou Richardson and Barbie Ferreira from Euphoria. And, uh, and essentially, like, <laughs> imagine... Um, never or never sometimes rarely always as like a broad teen comedy (laughs) oh okay um and that's this movie it's basically about like a popular girl who's like secretly finds out she's pregnant and doesn't want to tell anyone and so she goes back to this girl who's like a weirdo who was like her good friend in elementary school and who happens to have a car and is like will you drive with me 14 hours to the nearest place that i can get an abortion without parental consent um so, yeah, that's a whole movie. All right. Well. Okay. <laughs> just a fun tip for me. Thank you. Um, just what, you know, listeners want to hear at the hour and 40 <laughs> minute point. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening. You can find uh, the, you know, you've already found it. Subscribe if you haven't. Jason is on Twitter at. Excess Baggage. I am at Fight Balance. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end, that's amazing. There There goes goes the the binge. binge.